Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm sitting on the wagon instead of under the hood. I'm feeling pretty good. It's pretty weird. Uh, got the installation at the Center on Contemporary Art all done. The reception launch party opening is on uh, Thursday evening. Uh, everything's done. The, the all of the work, the physical work is is ready to be seen. The 17 minute long video component will be up on uh, their website online, and it features some of my uh, and my ensemble's best music. Uh, it it's uh, it's all all good uh, on that front. Other fronts are more complicated, but we'll get to that. How are you? I'm good. I spent the afternoon taking a handsaw to a bunch of tree limbs that fell during some recent storms. And I had Gus out there and his big thing when we go outside, besides playing with monster trucks and his splash pad and all that kind of stuff is to uh, hand me sticks. So what we did out there in the semi-grueling mid-May heat of Oklahoma is I would saw these limbs in half and then hand them to him and guide him to a pile that we were putting the sticks in. So we cut trees and put them in a pile. And this is probably, <laughs> this is a tip for anybody who's listening to this. This is a very practical tip. This is probably the best I've felt in months after just doing that because I, you know, I've gotten all of my different mushroom dosages correct reishi cordyceps my uh my polyrachis ants supplement that i take vitamin d ormus which is you know to it's it's a it's basically it's ormus is basically uh uh juiced gold that you squirt under your tongue that creates a lot of nice high spin molecules to help with cellular communication but all of that is for nothing i got out there my face was drenched in sweat. I sent you a picture. Yeah. Kind of, kind of a sunburn now. And uh, me and my kid got covered in ants and because <laughs> ants had burrowed into this dead tree limb. And he and loves we, ants. So he loves ants. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and I, and I eat ants every day. So yeah. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you, you do. Know? It's part so, of your uh, supplemental. We're uh, real. Uh, our, the well, ant might be our totem actually. I, I think it's a good family start. And I, I, I so loved the photograph that you mm -hmm. sent because mm -hmm. it captured everything that you just said. I immediately, and I should have asked permission, but I just felt it was necessary to forward it on to Anheuser-Busch <laughs> as a possible Bud Light comeback mm -hmm. from their recent uh, social <laughs> marketing debacles. And I thought this is the real image they're trying to put yeah. a happy, yeah. proud working dad out in the Oklahoma heat with his son, cutting up trees, dealing with ants and needing a bud light, having really earned it. That's, that's right. <laughs> no, I like that, man. Yeah. I like that. You know, outside of uh, all of the, the, the broader implications of that 
man, for listeners as a mental health hack, you always hear, you know, influencers and podcasters going on about hacks. It just comes down to doing things. My buddy Jay told me to download this app that it's a just a big to-do list. And I got it. And this morning <clears throat> I did my, I put my to-do list together and I completed it. And the cutting the limbs wasn't even on the to-do list. And so I think I might've unlocked the secret of happiness and contentment, which is just doing shit. well don't make the mistake of thinking that writing a list is doing something that's yeah yeah. no completing the list is though yeah well yeah but you don't actually have to have a list in order to do that but Mm -hmm. if you get out and do something and maybe stick with it you know Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. a lot to be said for uh I mean, when you walk around, you know, we were talking about in the last episode uh, about some of the images that I had in mind driving through uh, non-metro America. And you see, you know, parts of cars and outboard motors and weird bits of machinery and all. And what, what the the element of disorder there, it can be poverty as and we did mention that but it, we you can also be looking at a lot of unfinished projects you know where there's kind of an attention deficit that just people haven't followed through but if you get out and just do little things and try to knock over a few of those every day it's amazing how you know how much simpler things are and how much better you feel about you know that's right. really important right Well, that's how I'm doing. Uh, Do you have a band for us today? I do. I do. I this uh, I picked this up very. I I was walking around. uh, It the weather is you know Seattleish in spring, and it's been sort of dubious. There's been a lot. There's been a lot of precipitation and standing Mm -hmm. water. And mm-hmm. but today was uh, the sun was out and I, I went for a stroll. So I'm really enjoying the park and, and dealing with all the incredible blossomings and bloomings and grateful that I don't really have allergies. And but I mean, I'm still in, in the car park working my way through to the greener, more vegetative aspect. And I look at the, the cyclone fence and there's a sign. Just when my mood is really feeling good, it says heavy prowl area for car theft. So the name of the band is heavy prowl area. And their their album is really a kind of a new genre, which mixes uh, metal mariachi rap and vicious fun and it's called hot car music i would i would listen to that yeah i would listen to that well you 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 look like you might have that on a t-shirt and and some zoomer might come up and go hey that's a good t-shirt man that's what i'm going to vegas in just a few short days to engage i'm going to the to the big new metal festival at the las vegas fairgrounds corn system of a down 
Incubus. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, I am sad that I'm not in town to catch up. I, I had, of course, plans for us to do a, a, a really strange documentary film, which you probably don't have time for. But it's going to be interesting to see your reaction to Vegas because it's been a few years since you've been back. Well, next episode, I'll have a full debrief. Okay, well, I look forward to that. That will be a, a weird parallel universe version of my thought. But uh, Heavy Prowl Area's first single is called Luck is Like a Railroad Track. Hot car music. Badass. And Ooh, I have yeah. two aphorisms. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yes, yes. Symmetry is interesting even when damaged, maybe especially when damaged. That's yep. number one. And then this one I like because I, I really, I, I did manage it uh, the other day in, in not so good weather. I just had to get out, stretch, kind of, you know, get some kind of other input. And there were a lot of crazy people and just a lot of noise and traffic. And I tried to go to some latitude in my interior that would be soothing and reassuring. And I thought, I asked myself, what do you, what do you really have faith in? Really? You know? And I thought, have faith in the essential strangeness of life. Think of all the improbable creatures. You know, I thought about all of the amazing life forms that as a creative person, as a, you know, writer, storyteller, artist in various media, and you would, you would understand this, you know, there are so many creatures that I just would never have thought of. And that's, it, that's of the ones that I know about. We only know very little, really, about all of the life forms on Earth. So I thought that that's something I can go back to. And that is a, a kind of faith that I think neatly steers around many of the conflicts that people have with the word and the idea of faith in, in, in serious terms, you know, beyond just conversation of uh, really meaning it in, in a kind of spiritual religious sense. Um, so I thought that was, that made me feel better. I like that. It's good stuff. Do you have an imaginative challenge for me? Today? I do. I do. Okay. The expression objects in the mirror are closer than they appear is something that we've all seen on in the side view mirrors of our cars. And I was thinking, well, yeah, that's not, that's a cool expression. I remember, you know, now it's been used as a title so many times. But I, I thought a couple of things. Objects in the mirror are not only in the mirror. 
you know, let's not forget that, right? Right. But objects in the mirror are also much more numerous than they appear. And that got me, you know, we were talking last time, we've used this expression, and it's out in, in general currency of the mirror verse, you know, the secondary tertiary world of the media and entertainment, the blurred goo world of fabricated realities, which are nonetheless deeply, deeply influential. And it would appear that that is very difficult to escape from. I think you'd agree with that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you really have to work hard that way. Um, so your imaginative challenge for this episode is a very pragmatic uh, retreater going off the grid exercise in how you, Rios, and Gus would escape the mirror verse for at least six months. How would you practically do that if you absolutely had to? Whether there the these there was a threat to your sanity, and I suggest there's a threat to all our sanities. Uh, but supposing that we're we're phrased more positively of getting some kind of a reward how could you really completely detach and not damage other social relationships that you have say with your uh you know the grandparents in-laws you know and you have to no one's handing you any money you know mm -hmm. Uh, the, the reward, if it is money, and you could let's say that, okay, let's say there's a monetary payoff that only comes at the end, okay. You have to completely disappear from the mirror verse and really have a cleanse. Is that in any way truly possible? And your response will be is always measured by, uh, just the natural imaginative uh, energy that you bring to it, but it actually has to be practical. It has to be something that might actually work. So it's psychic defense at a very, very street level, garage level, backyard level. Um, how do you do it? How do you do it? And I'll throw in one more thing. I, I think what we're one of our underlying themes and techniques and methods across the Lost Explorers podcast is making, well, becoming more conscious of the metaphors we use, the George Lakoff, Mark Johnson sort of uh, approach to metaphors. But the other alternative is to make them more concrete. We said that to really lean into them, as you put it last time. And maybe that is the solution, is to really lean in rather than running away. Okay. But if, if we need a lateral approach to this. I think it's really uh, 
the third man in the woods. You know, you really got to go uh, oblique on this. Uh, if you can't just dig a hole and build uh, a bunker, you know, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. maybe you can. Maybe it's it's no, going to be no, some no. sort of bunker, but maybe not the kind of bunker that you can dig in the ground, if you know what I mean. And just just for the purposes of this challenge, uh, in terms of the mirrorverse, we're just talking about you know no no technology, no no screens. Yeah, I think you could. I think you could. Those are emblematic of the whole thing, and I I would I would agree to that. That's good enough. Okay, but to go deeper, just sort of separating from modernity in general, right? Yes. Just, the whole thing yes. okay okay to step through the veil into some other uh territory of mind yeah yeah okay yeah got it all right cool would you like me to read your text yeah yeah i kind of i i'm yeah i, I hope that isn't too disjointed but you do such good reading so yeah would you like me to also read through the observations you wrote on the road or stop before those? Look, I'm going to leave it to you. you uh, okay. Whatever sense it makes to you, I think well, is you're our, you're our guide. Well, if you, if you leave it to me, I'm going to read them. So, okay. All right. Uh, here are the notes. Yay. I like your enthusiasm. Uh, first page of Thomas Wolfe's of time and the river how we see the faces of ancient Egypt walking around today. The daunting idea that everyone is here. Possible name for my new album. We are our ancestors. True? Not true. Are we literally haunted and inhabited, not only by a phantom sense of self, hidden observer slash humunculus, but by ashes and dust made blood? Genes. In last episode, I spoke about genealogy. If you don't really know very much about your family tree, what hope do you have with know thyself? Or are the Buddhists more accurate? Don't overvalue family relationships. The double problem I have, and I think you do too, is that I'm convinced the consciousness of today is different than it was not that long ago. How does consistency or inheritance work on substantial structural levels, exporting itself through time, while other patterns morph beyond recognition, or maybe outright die. Two observations I wrote down on the road. Quote, heritage is a deep human paradigm, and this may be what's disappearing through intention, ignorance, and the influence vector of unknown qualities. End quote. Quote, The cynical view of much philanthropy, especially architectural, is as an expression of status, vanity, ego, and even greed in the sense of reputation and legacy. A more optimistic view would be as a performance of optimism, some kind of faith in the future. It doesn't really take that much to become more optimistic, and the optimism doesn't have to be in any way starry-eyed or rose I'm going to add here tinted glasses. Yes. End quote. Well done. Mm-hmm. I think you navigated that beautifully and hitting the strange emphases <laughs> that 
I love these texts, man. I love these texts. These are good thought generators. I like thought generators. What grabs you out of that? Does it did I mean you made stuff? Okay, so I thought of it. I would actually, I would like to start with Thomas Wolfe's of Time in the River and how we see the faces of ancient Egypt walking around today. Uh, the Buddhist notions of uh, not overvaluing family relationships uh, busts out to me as well. And I think that the more optimistic view might, in a way, um, that might tie it into how I uh, do my imaginative challenge so we can maybe save that for okay. the end. But I like that. Um, I like that. Um, it's all cool. Obviously, it's all cool. Um, my grandmother, my mama, my one surviving grandparent is huge into genealogy and family trees. So I actually know a lot about where my that's, family that's comes quite, from. Well, that's really cool. That's I know. Very, and also very it's it's that's not usual. Yeah, I know that my first my first uh, ancestor on her side was a man named Jean-Baptiste Hippolyte Gilly of the Gilly family, Mickey Gilly, Jerry Falwell, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. They're all part of that same family tree. Are you kidding? Oh, no, wow. yeah, it's all, it's, yeah, it's all the same. That's my first ancestor, and he uh, landed in the port of New Orleans. and uh, Or not New Orleans, but, you know, Louisiana. They're all Cajuns, basically. So, And that was okay. in se- 1756. Is when he got. So, here. in other words, when you say first ancestor, you mean that's the first that you know of. That's that's the first that I know of. Yeah, yeah. On my oh. on my other grandmother's side, her her parents immigrated from Poland, the Lebenics. And there's very few Lebenics in the United States. They're all uh, centered around uh, Hartford, Connecticut. No, I'm sorry, New Britain, Connecticut. There's about four Lebenic families there. L a b i e n i e c. And uh, they actually ran a pet fu- a pet food store that was shut down due to COVID. So those are the two, two of the four vectors. Well, you know more than a lot of people do. And, and there's absolute proof of that. Absolute mm-hmm. proof. There are some people who really do know a lot, whether or not they've really made a, a real practice of, of genealogy and family trees. But I think that is interesting and in its own right, it's fascinating, but it's, it is also interesting for, uh, for being unusual today. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's certainly unusual. I think for someone uh, your age, you know, I think that's really cool. And you're obviously, Mm -hmm. you are interested in it. It matters to you. It matters to you. Of course it does. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to think about it too much if you're born into, you know, um, if you're born in a town in Warsaw and your family's lived in Warsaw forever, it's all right there, but it's incumbent upon us as Americans, I think, to understand these kind of things because we're all mutts at the end of the day. <laughs> we're all well, very diverse. You know, absolutely. And that may be that, you know, uh, as with other uh, life forms, uh, certainly other supposedly higher animals, that may be what gives us any sort of survival capability at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Because purebreds and the inbreds, the very fine line. Yeah. 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 Often non-existent. But yeah, I would love to start off with the uh Thomas Wolfs of Time in the River. Okay. Uh and I I'm thinking of Wolf because he he died at 38 of TB in Seattle. 
Uh, I think he's kind of, uh, he was enormously influential in his time and is one, well, he's he's the writer that I think of uh, when we use the expression, the great American novel, kind of a sprawling mess of just incredible emotive power uh, and a neuro-linguistic programming approach to prose. Not that uh, his work obviously predated that, but a tremendously influential American writer. Uh, you see him almost directly copied in Jack Kerouac's first big and very uncharacteristic novel, uh, The Town and the City. So he had a huge impact. And his opening uh, prelude overture uh, in of time in the river. And I, I love that, uh, that title. And uh, I, I personally don't think time is anything like a river. Uh, I think that's the whole uh, strange thing. I think we've got to rewire that metaphor on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. um, but he's really setting the scene for telling a very big story that the characters and incidents that he's relating or about to relate need to be experienced by the reader against the great epic backdrop of human history. And he tries to pull that away from history in some sort of Julius Caesar grand oratory, uh, great figure sense, and to really pull it down to the level of the woman in the hair salon is just like the woman, you know, there's an, there's an analog equivalent you know, 2,500 years ago in Egypt, you know, and, and these faces and characters repeat. And I think an interesting other way to think of, of Wolf, because of course he's pre-TV, is how character actors, you know, always insinuate themselves into different, you know, you think, wait a minute, where have I seen that? But I mean, I that guy's been in like every Western I, that's ever been made and mm -hmm. on and on and on. So it is this very strange sense that the characters in the dream, the great dream of the human imagination do repeat. And we can see that, I think, some moments. And, and there are a lot of Neanderthal jokes in the last couple of years, I've noticed. It's become a category, you know? We think, well, these people are Neanderthals, you know? And we, you know, and other people, you know, are other repeats of something. And we do, I mean, I, I, I've, I think we all know people we've seen who look like, I don't know, Amazonian warriors or Vikings or mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. going back a few episodes, your imaginative challenge response of uh, the Viking long, the carved Viking longboat in the mm -hmm. trees in the upper Amazon, you know, just overtaken by jungle. Uh, and this weird mix of Celtic, Viking, uh, Nordic culture and Aztec, you know. I think that we can see that from time to time, but I wonder how often we put ourselves into that mix and go, well, you know, I mean, it's the past life thing, isn't it? Have you ever known anyone who was really into past life belief? Uh, besides me, a few, but okay. yes, me. 
Where are you on that? Because I think this is a this is an interesting thing. Tell me, tell us about your well, past lives. My past, the most, the most intense vision that I have of past lives, where I feel a kind of nostalgia for a time where I never existed, but more than nostalgia, a kind of knowing is actually 1970s New York. If you've ever seen the Warriors, okay. yeah, 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 I've talked about yep. that before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rios has one really interesting where where her past life that she recalls very clearly is as a a Russian person. She How she odd. feels that way about Moscow. Yeah, How yeah. Odd. So yeah, yeah. It's it's so strange that it feels true, right? Um, but in terms of past lives, I feel like the preponderance of evidence, it's the same as psi phenomena to me, where, you know, you have uh, all of these anecdotes that just don't, don't make sense unless you factor in the fact that people have past lives, you know, children who have been able to recall, you know, the way that an F-15 works and being able to give just incredible details. You know what it, it you know what sold it for me uh the the folks who do research into past lives when they ask children about this what really interests me about that data is the stuff that kids get wrong when they're initially interviewed that then later on turn out to be true that's what that. uh a good example of that would be oh I was listening to something recently where there was a kid who um he was a he was a fighter pilot right and he he had given a location of where he was when he had died and as far as the family knew this particular pilot was lost in a different region right but through whatever you know uh, happenstance they ended up actually finding the wreckage exactly where the kid had said it would be right so that's something that can't be coached you can coach kids on correct facts but you can't coach them on incorrect facts that end up becoming real that's very interesting i think that's a really cool thing to think about i i i have and i think this is a way to sort of start unpacking this wolfian notion about repeating figures resonating uh, characters throughout time, or at least human history. I, in about seventh grade, it started, and I fortunately don't have it anymore. It dropped off, dropped off in high school, and I didn't do anything consciously. But I had a very strange feeling around my neck, mm. and I was never content, kind of doing the the call, you know, the turtle, you know, that didn't work, and I. But I, there was a kind of, and, and if someone said, well, what's wrong? I, I, it was hard, to, you know, and here I, you know, even then I, I was a pretty articulate kid. I couldn't explain it. And I, uh, I was listening to a radio program. I think it might've been, uh, it was years later. Uh, I was in college and it might've been the first time that I ever listened to NPR, but it was about that phenomenon. and. It actually sounds a little bit sort of X-Filesy for NPR, but maybe I will give them the benefit of the doubt. But the guest that was on what is is a real or was a, a past lives expert at the time. 
and of course took a, what sound will end up sounding as I'm about to explain a very straightforward uh, interpretation of that. I had been strangled or hanged or beheaded in an earlier life. Right. And what is a little odd about that, I know because of my commitment to dream recording that I had had predating that by at least five years a dream about not getting beheaded and actually uh, dying, but I got my throat very badly slashed by a ceremonial kind of scimitar-like thing. Hmm. And I, I, I have some clear memories of what that dream scenario was. So I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, I think that what Wolf is on about is not past lives so much in the paranormally sort of way that we're talking mm. about, mm -hmm. but very mm -hmm. much in the physical genetic yeah. thing that mm -hmm. we're literally the expressions of the past. And of course, you know, people who, and I, a couple of our heroes will unrike the um, very uh, lateral thinking psychologist and uh, experimenter uh, believed very much that we can, you know, that we contain uh, on a sort of microcosm basis the, the entire history of life forms. It's a Jungian idea um, mm -hmm. and that we really do, you know, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. We see that mm -hmm. in very structural mm -hmm. terms with a fetus developing. Uh, so it's it's not seen by many people to be uh paranormal or metaphysical in any way just the opposite it's absolutely physical uh and and visible and measurable and discussable mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. so my question i suppose in thinking about that is is if we say yes we can see that and i think with certain individuals with very striking faces we can put them into certain contexts and at great uh, festivals, we've done shows about uh, cultures, you know, like Mexican culture, where festivals are very important. When people are in, in, in traditional costumes, it's obviously easier to connect them back in time. And that's, of course, what the costumes and the ceremony and festivals are doing. They, mm -hmm. they're, they're time travel. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've looked into those issues. And... There's no question there's something that that is going on. And, and we know kind of conceptually that, well, we wouldn't be here had there not been people before us. That's, of course, very weird. But then we get into the umphalos uh, paradox of, well, where did those first people come from? And we start getting into some weird territory there uh, on both the mythic level and the structural biological levels. But I think more practically, the question is, okay, yeah, supposing that that's true, how do you account for the great changes? How do you account for what's been lost? 
How do you account for the disappearances of people? Have they really disappeared? I mean, Walker Percy asked the question, where are the Hittites? You know, mm -hmm. you hear about a whole bunch of other, but where are the Hittites? Um, I mean, where are the Phoenicians for that matter? How do they, you know, mm. and Africa's got tons of these groups that just people disappear. Native Americans, the Blythe and Taglios that we talked about, the giant earthworks near uh, Vegas, between Vegas and LA. No Native American tribe claims those. Nobody knows who made them. Uh, so on and on these things go. And I mean, in a way, you could say this is the fundamental mystery of anthropology, physical archaeology, and the whole history of, of Homo sapiens. I mean, why do certain things repeat? Not like just memes. I mean, that, that's weird enough. But why... I mean, and I guess really, the you know, for the question for people like Richard Dawkins, as he went back into being a scientist, would be, well, when it comes to humans, how does that, how did, how has evolution actually worked? Because it doesn't seem to be making any sense. It's not patterning the way that it does with some, many of the other animals that get trotted out as proof or evidence mm -hmm. let's say evidence right. not proof so to me i guess what i had was a real encounter a wolfian encounter with that mystery at main street ghost town and walmart town level everywhere i went i kept running into that because it was on my mind but also i i was seeing it and really wondering how does it how does it work mm. Practically, that is a very interesting question. How does it work? I <clears throat> I just keep thinking about, yeah, where did the Phoenicians go? I mean, you can see evidence of the Phoenicians in Pythagoras, right? So they their their secret teachings all passed down, but they were largely gone. Uh, whoever made the Blythe and Taglios, whoever made that that beautiful walmart in arizona that's no longer being <laughs> traversed it is interesting because is what you're saying that there is a kind of repeating pattern to disappearance and reemergence is that a good way of thinking about it i i think it's it's an it's an unavoidable way to 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 frame the question. It may not be the only way, yeah. but it's absolutely unavoidable to discuss. And I think it's a very handy starting point. I, I think there's, uh, I mean, that's a mystery in and of itself. So there, it's not like that really explains anything. But I think that those terms are helpful because they figure into uh, the biological frame uh atavism in a biological sense but the the mythic side of emergence and return so it blends right, right, the elements right. that are crucial right so there is a a kind of biological atavistic uh, an in the genes compulsion to disappear and then reemerge. that's very interesting as disappearance is a necessary part of that cycle i'm very 
um, interested right now in all of the, you know, how, how they talk about dogs dying and a, a dog will look for like a good place to die or an elephant will travel to an elephant graveyard. And they just kind of know that this is the thing they're supposed to do before they pass away. What you're saying is interesting to me because that suggests that there's a, there's a through line in human history in our kind of human way of knowing of disassembling and disappearing certain cultures that when they're in their peak, when they're at their absolute peak, you would never think that they would go anywhere, but that that maybe that's just something that we kind of do a kind of accelerated entropy to our different societies in order to, you know, clear the slate and then build it back up again, which makes a lot of sense as to where we are right now. But yeah, that mystery in particular of where do these things go? Why do we have ghost towns and, you know, places like Othello versus uh, places like, uh, was it Bluth? What was the Bull, name of that? Buell or Buell. Buell. Buell, Buell right. I'm not sure exactly the pronunciation. I like it either way. So right. Yeah. Probably yeah, yeah, Buell, yeah. But yeah, I like but what makes What makes one happen one way and one happen the other way? Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, actually, because that seems to me to be a very deep a, a deep well of inquiry. Well, I was thinking that one one interesting way to look at this in a, like a workshop sort of sense. I mean, imagine if we were discussing this in the context of like the Esalen Institute and you mm-hmm. and I were like a, an extended weekend workshop with maybe, I don't know, 12 people, you know, maybe couples. I was thinking that one way that that would would be very is to start with oneself mm. and say in your case to start with Gus as a moment as a reference point and to look at how you and Rios's life paths came together to create yield make possible gas and how would that get depicted how would that look vis- if you if you had to make a kind of dynamic dimensional map out of it what would it start to look like and one of the thoughts that came to mind which i i um i think i've recommended is a kind of uh crystal radio sort of experiment home project that you could do with Gus as he gets a little older is a pinhole camera, uh, which is a very primitive form of photography and fits into this thing that we have been looking at and we'll keep dipping in and out of as uh, a defining element of modernity of the captured image, sort of second Gutenberg revolution that the pinhole camera sort of creates this weird kind of firefly sense of movement, you know, and I, I'm thinking of my late business partner who was, uh, he was a self-trained professional photographer, but he did a really cool one. Uh, big guy, kind of galumpy. He was 12 years older. I'm sorry. He, he died of pancreatic cancer, but at one point he, uh, he had this great uh, hat and he was just sitting in this in the in the backyard on the his rural property, posing for this p- 
pinhole camera that he'd made. And the result was absolutely fantastic because without any movement, this is still a still image that results, but it is this beautiful primitive time-lapse uh, jungle of fireflies and sort of imagery that just shows a kind of, well, it's a mixture of, of atomization, aura, you know, all sorts of metaphorical frames that we could bring to you think, wow, that's what's that's what sitting still posing really looks like. Of course, that's not true, but uh, you know what I mean? It was a, it was a mm -hmm. lovely way of of looking at presence and the 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 fundamental intermittent nature of our existence. You know, it was a really nice way to depict that in very practical, simple terms. So I'm thinking of applying that kind of metaphorical vision to this much more complex dimensional map of you and Rios will start you back, your paths back in time at when you were like Gus's age and you you know, sort of dimensionalize that and firefly that a mosaic and kaleidoscope it forward in time to the point of you coming together. You'd been to, you've been together for a long time, all, all sorts of, and you were you broke up and you know all all. So you've got a lot of stuff to, you know, depict in some way. However, that gets done, but there is a moment of conception, and then. There's other provisionalities and intermittences in Gus's coming forth into the world. I think if one could do that in a in a kind of a visual art way, so you'd get you know six to twelve people with various just basic art materials, drawing on their imaginative challenge skills, like when you did your spider map of time, you know, which I think is a beautiful thing. Uh, for listeners, that goes back many episodes to one of uh, the first visual challenges I gave to David. Uh, I think that might be a way to start thinking about the complexities of this. And I wonder if you did this, you know, not just one workshop of say 12 people, but you started to do it with multiple, if, if some other patterns and consistencies might form so that we might come a little bit closer to maybe well, not a physics, but some sort of peculiar geometry, you know, that is certainly not Euclidean, you know, it may not uh, be Romani, but, Romani, but it's, it would be something, something that might lead us forward to a little bit more insight into all these variables, you know, I don't know. That's just, it would be interesting to do anyway. I think so. And I think that that is what, that's a crucial element that's missing from a lot of discourse and ways of thinking right now is the complexity and the, you know, the randomness and the questioning and the not necessarily having answers for everything. I've been finding myself much more uh, in tune with and vibing with thinkers who do not purport to have a direct answer for things, but who are curious about the threads that led up to an event and what potential threads might spawn out from it. So it's just a different way, I think, of 
of thinking. And it's so interesting too, because photography for so long has been used to uh, represent a concrete past. This is what it was like. This is how things were. And this image of your friend with the fireflies moving all around them is sort of using the same technology, a kind of rebuke to that in that no, there are, there are things that have that were moving at different stages of the process of the whole thing. So that's uh, the pinhole camera might be an, an interesting tool to add to the toolkit in terms of how we think about things. I, I absolutely think it is. And I think that it's uh, emblematic of an approach to uh, hacking or uh, rehabilitating or repurposing some anachronistic devices but not not antique and lost in time it's it's really more i mean the 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 technology so to speak of a pinhole camera shouldn't be thought of as outdated it, it is beautifully uh up to speed as it ever was and it's it's like thinking of a book as technology a book boots up instantly there's a mm -hmm. lot you know mm -hmm. you think of it as uh as a, a work of technology in its own right, and it certainly is, um, there's an enormous amount to be said. Uh, oh, and that gets me to just a quick mention. A few episodes back, I scored the, the Time Life, you know, collection of science books uh, for 17 volumes for 17 bucks. And I really recommend them. And I, 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 I've, I brought with me on my uh, journey north to Seattle for the art show and you know, all the stuff I'm doing for a month. Uh, I brought along uh, I, my Kindle, which is loaded with 3,500 years of the greatest world literature. Uh, but I brought along one book, the Time Life book on machines. And it's very interesting to dip in and out of because it it really connects us back to a pre-computer pre-digital revolution idea of technology that is so important to have and that the zoomer age group is just lost entirely they just can't get with the idea of an arrowhead point being an example of technology you really have to i find i have to really explain that to them so this may be the other way to get to the conflict that i mentioned in the notes that i i really am eager to get your response about because if we say that thomas wolf is right yeah we can see the the woman at the well in Cairo or Alexandria, you know, thousands of years ago. And we can see her, she might be in Alexandria, you know, Victoria, uh, Virginia, or, you know, Cairo, Illinois, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. those names repeat, you know? There's, there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that's repeating. We accept that. How do we account for these enormous distances and for an emergent two generations, but certainly the Zoomer generation, like they can't, like even a rotary dial telephone becomes impossible. You know, why, you know, so what's repeating really? If the consciousness, if the collective memory 
if the Jungian side of this is not hooked up to the biology, to the genes. And this is kind of where Dawkins, you know, his idea of memes, you know, he, he was frustrated about that too. He was thinking, look, we kind of have some clarity about genes, genetic transference. I think too much faith in that uh, and not enough questioning. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. it comes to the mind, to the consciousness, to the ideas, to a collective cultural memory, uh, that seems very, very mysterious and uh, so idiosyncratic that you, I don't know, it's hard to systematize in any way to, to, to know that you're talking about something of substance at all. I think that if we start with the idea that time is cyclical and that these things do repeat, that's a good starting point. And the motifs that repeat over generations and centuries uh, are contingent upon people who are not uh, confronted with ever, ever smaller spirals in their daily lives, right? So I think of it in terms of a whirlpool. Uh, and when you have a whirlpool, at the top of the whirlpool, you have items that start here, and it takes them a long time to go around, and then they hit right. again. The closer you get to that hole, everything's just mixed in. And I think that that's where uh, possibly my generation, definitely the Zoomers are at right now, where everything is just bouncing off of each other so fast. And then you come back out of that hole, and it's a reverse whirlpool out back into nice, uh, you know, like hundreds, hundreds of years of cyclical time. It's just, that's a, that's a Grant Morrison idea, by the way, of the whirlpool, that the closer and closer you get, the, the faster things begin to ping off of each other. And so I think that um, I do conceive of time as concentric circles or spirals or what have you. And I just think that our point in the timeline is so small that necessarily, you know, think about sending in terms of pattern patterns repeating, you know, we have, uh, you know, people who are very concerned just with the self. And so just on a, on a individual physical level, there are people who are repeating cycles of time multiple times over their entire lives versus a person who at the top of that spiral might be enacting one small piece in this grand cosmic serpent eating its own tail or a Boros type thing. So I, I just, I think that, you know, if you conceive of it as, you know, those, uh, those Coke bottles that you tie end to end and then you shake them up and they make the tornadoes, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like you do that. I think that's kind of how time works actually. And we're just, we're at that pinch point. Is that to say that that is the uh, the human experience, the human construction, uh, human centric, your model of time, the whirlpool model of time? Yeah, is that what that means? In terms of applying to other life forms. Well, I think that. I guess I don't necessarily make a distinction between the the humans and other life forms in terms of this i guess individually you can 
I think that other life forms are thrown into this by virtue of, you know, whatever the locus of consciousness at that one point is going through this kind of, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the extinctions and the, and the rise of new, you know, hybrid species and things like that. I think that, um, thinking more about it, I want to take that back. Cause I actually do think that species still move on that kind of top of the whirlpool time, but it gets complicated by how human beings experience that. That's what I'll say. I think it's, I think it's, I think we're more disruptive than, than other species because okay. I find it, okay. I, I was recently listening to a podcast about uh, beavers there used to be 400 million beavers in America. I don't know how they know that, but that's what they told me, right? We're down, we, at a certain point, we Question, got down to, it? yeah, at a certain point, we got down to 100,000. Now we're back up to about 4 million. They don't foresee us ever populating, you know, beavers out to, to 400 million again. But in terms of, this is not, and it's impossible to give, an assessment of a beaver's internal experience of their lives, right? But it seems to me that that the beaver population dwindling and then building back up is a physical, outward, non-human manifestation of what I'm describing as a very internal human phenomenon. Um, also, by the way, did you know that beavers cannot stand the sound of running water? Yes. Well, they they... Yeah, they that's they, why they build yeah. dams. Like yeah. they've actually they've actually put a beaver in a room with a recording of running water and yeah. a beaver will build around that recording to block they can't out the ignore sound. the sound of running water. I think that's it. They, they have a response to it. Well, you know, the tricky thing, I mean, and this is the great one of the great ways of seeing the problem between the 19th, the 20th century and today is that, well, thinking people have a real philosophical problem in very practical terms, if they see humans as entirely separate from the continuum of life and other creatures, that humans are the time-binding animal, as Skorzybski said, that language is the means of doing that, culture and the ghost radius and all of those things create this uh, silo or bubble around homo sapiens that make us absolutely uh, unconditionally different from any other creatures, including the, the all other primates, all other mammals. Uh, and if you say that the opposite, that humans do not have a very different sense of time, and haven't obstructed or influenced the nature of time, then you've got a problem too. And I think that one way of, of, you know, before we have any hope of dealing with the environmental crises on many levels that we face and perhaps extinction level challenges, we're going to have to resolve that. We're going to have to put humans mm -hmm. into the mosaic of life Mm -hmm. in some new way and make some 
well, we're going to have to reach some point of agreement of how we think about that. I have um, a question for you then. I have a question for you. I don't want to derail too much, but I have to hear this response. Hit me. What do you think the role of the human is in that mosaic? Well, mystically, we're stewards of the garden. Mm -hmm. uh, we're caretakers that uh, became corrupted by our own. Success. You hit on it immediately, steward. That was I was looking for stewardship, and that was like the fourth word out of your mouth. So <laughs> I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's you know that that's the 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 mythic the moral the biological i mean i think that's the the word the frame that brings everything together mm -hmm. uh, and it's also i guess a way of measuring or putting some frame on our failures and our successes mostly yeah. failures, i think many people would say yeah yeah and is our is our perception of time, oh, this might be interesting, our perception of time bound up in that stewardship? Because since we perceive of it in the way that we do and we're able to keep it, we have, was that given to us as a kind of, you know, the ability to recognize cycles totally maps onto us being stewards, right? Like, why else would we know what time even is? if we didn't need to know about things like geological time and, you know, the movement of different species. Oh man, this is, is kind of blowing my mind right now. It blows up so big and so fast. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And, and I think this is what happens to a lot of, of smart young people. They get a taste of this and they get really fired up and it can be overwhelming. It just yeah. it can, so flood and the brain, the mind, the heart, the spirit, and you just don't know how to pursue it. And you suddenly sort of begin to settle back into a mediocre, you know, mediocrity of not asking any questions, just not being able to kind of cope with the grandness of it. Uh, and this it is, is why we can, this is why we invented photography. This is why we invented photography. Because record keeping and capturing moments totally plays into this whole cyclical notion of how of how time works. Like a photograph isn't necessarily like a relic of a past. Like a photograph could potentially a photograph from the 18th century, 19th century, could it could be a message from the future in its own way. I hope that doesn't sound too crazy, but I think that no, no, it doesn't. You, you know, you, you see what I mean? Like photography is is potentially we've thought forever of of photography as this record of a past, but in how we're talking about it and using this kind of stewardship model, it's actually a photograph is only worthwhile in in its predictive capabilities for the future. I think that's that's a beautiful insight, and that is part of the enormously strange occult, fundamental occult time travel quality of photography, where it isn't only just predetermining or having profound influence on 
perception and expectation, but it does it does create a value of the worth of something is its predictive fulfillment side. And I think that once the, the once photography became as ubiquitous as someone like George Eastman, you know, dreamed it would mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm, and I think even more so than he, you know, it was more successful. I mean, it's impossible to take a young person today into a pre-selfie world. Mm-hmm. Now, that is now gone. That has formed such a base of, of mental programming that it's impossible to, uh, you know, to get out of that frame. And think about all, I mean, just really going to really simple levels of like uh, crime novel premises the cell phone the smartphone in constant access has just ruined a lot of alibis and blown a lot of stories yeah. and a lot of things yeah. you know and yeah, all crime novels now have to take place pre-2007 they have yeah. to because 2007 was the introduction of the iphone i'm i'm outlining a crime novel right now and i just said fuck it i'm putting it i'm basing it in 2004 because all the surveillance and, you know, I mean, people, you look now and you see, uh, you know, murders being solved because so-and-so tagged themselves on Instagram at a certain restaurant at a certain time. It's not fun anymore. Imagine a Columbo of today. Uh, just just one more thing. You yeah. tagged this post on, on Instagram on February 26th. What's that like? There's nothing interesting about that, you know. Um, well, we're trapped by our own procedures, and you know, I, I uh, have a look at this. Uh, I'm just, I joke my niece about the size of her television. It may not look that big to you. To me, it was so big that I, I was just fascinated looking at it blank <laughs> with nothing on it. And then, uh, like John I, D, uh, you were like John D. Yeah, well, and I, but when I did turn it on, uh, the uh, the remake of Hawaii Five O came on, and, you know, and the wave is coming out of it, you know, uh, and I thought, whoa, shit, you know, it's going to wash me away. <laughs> but I started watching it, and it's another one of these cop procedural things, and that's a significant element of the show. They're always explaining not just the latest investigative techniques and forensics and stuff, but they're really trying to put into a contemporary framework with all of the technology, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some good action and violence and, you know, oh, and it's just like, we don't, I don't care about all this, like making it logical <laughs> and explain because they never are up to date. They're always going to be, you know, it's just right. painful. But I think this is the weird thing about the, the the consciousness, the human collective consciousness has been somehow profoundly mutated, altered, damaged, evolved, changed, however you think about it. That is the essence of modernity. Mm-hmm. So how does that intersect, interrelate, connect in any way with any kind of biological, physical consistency, 
that's maintained. We just don't have a theory about that at all. Yeah, yeah, we don't. And everyone has to go kind of quiet and go, well, I'm not really sure how that works, you know, because it just seems enormously mysterious. And I think it's, uh, we're not thinking, we're not framing this correctly for there to be that much of a problem about putting Mm -hmm. those together. Mm -hmm. There's mm. something that we're not seeing. We're going to have to throw out the genetic faith that we've got. Somehow that's not, there's something wrong with that. If we think that's clear and yet cultural change is not. Mm. Thinking about the photography example, I wonder if the Hawaii Five O remake, reboot, whatever it is, I wonder if that necessitated the original. Just starting to think about things backwards. I love that idea. This is a beautiful following through of our, our uh, you know, approach to inversion uh, mm-hmm. and, and flipping things around. And I think this is absolutely the kind of thinking that we've got to encourage. We've this is the this is psychic defense. This is the answer to your imaginative challenge for today. But it's our challenge at this crucial, weird whirlpool moment of history. Well, let's just entertain that idea for a moment. How would we prosecute that if we were really taking that notion seriously? That somehow, what was the crucial, what verb form do you want to put on that, that the reboot necessitates the original facilitates make what 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 verb do you want to put on that i like i like facilitates better okay okay facilitates that's more open-ended i think that's got a nice uh that's got a nice liquid oxygen groove to it i like that Mm -hmm. Uh, that it facilitates because if we think about things in terms of this just constant entropy right but like that's also stuck in this idea of time as linear rather than cyclical right so if you think about it cyclically the reboot and the original are on opposite ends of the same whirlpool right and they might change in a way that us being bound by 4d space would never understand but they have a necessary relationship to each other a, a troubled, a complicated relationship to each other that I think is uh, very interesting. I think this is a lead into a whole new form of art and science, of visualizing information, of whirlpooling. You know, whirlpool diagram. Whirlpooling, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Of, of how yeah. this might work. Um, because it suggests that you've got a very organic, dynamic form of geometry, but a kind of mirror imaging of. Yep. yep. Uh, and let's just take one example while we're on the Hawaii 5 0 thing. There, one of the catch cry slogans of the original series were original just for the moment okay <laughs> the other version was the expression book them dano mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. they repeat that they've got a character named danny 
And mm-hmm. so the new McGarrett now, who's like a ex army ranger uh, and the son of, you know, okay. So it's, they've got some sort of family, but they've got, they, they somehow managed to work in a character with the name Danny so that he could say book him Dano. But if we flip that around, just that one expression, you would say, if you were going to do another version of Hawaii Five O, however you are moving in time, mm-hmm. you would have to have that expression built into it somehow. Because that's one of the things that makes it. That, it's like the theme song. Dun, 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 dun. You've got to have that. It doesn't have to be. The instrumentation can change. But there are a few things that make Hawaii 5.0 what it is. Mm-hmm. And those theme song and Bookham Dano and character name are, are really crucial. So I like how that, you know, it's like um, some of the more interesting uh, aspects of physics that we dip into from time to time, and certainly the whole weird quantum world. But a lot of what John Wheeler, uh, who's got to be one of, I think was one of the coolest of, of, I would have really loved to have gotten high with John Wheeler. Uh, He's, he, you know, one of his great things is if something weird hasn't happened, it hasn't been much of a day, has it? Um, but he pointed out how many things violate the arrow of time or the river of time principle and that do work both ways. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so much of interesting art of the, the modern period of the 20th century played with those ideas of stepping outside that linearity, that narrative structure. And breaking the narrative structure down the the, the uh, left to right arrow mm-hmm. of time, how sentences read. I mean, that's my number one goal. You know, that's yeah, totally, absolutely that. I like this thinking. I I think that if we could apply that to something that. Well, I guess that's a very interesting way of looking at uh, the old biblical proverb, you know, from from Ecclesiastes, which almost every world culture has. There is nothing new under the sun. Well, of course, there is. because Every day is a new day that's different. And we're just here. Oh, no. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, but, you know, that's the conflict. That's the paradox, isn't it? There is nothing new under the sun in one Mm -hmm. sense. That's what Mm -hmm. we're saying. That's not the right way to, and yet there is something that is profoundly new and different. Yeah, yeah. Newness is just uh, a carrot that is dangled in front of us beings who are condemned to linear time in order to enact actions that have retrocausal properties, basically, right? We, we ex- of course, you and I experience this cradle to grave. Everybody we know experiences it the same way because we're sort of stuck in that. And that is necessary because if we were beings who didn't have any kind of, you know, sort of linearity to us, there would be no points on the timeline to even enact, right? We would, we would be all over the place. We'd be something else entirely. So basically like we're just here again as stewards, not just of 
the creatures and the environment and, you know, and record keepers and, and, and soothsayers and whatever, but we're actually very pivotal, pivotal devices in this whole whirlpool mechanism based on our perception of linear time, specifically so that we can influence not just the future, but also the, the past. You know, I'm thinking that uh, I like Grant Morrison, too, and I know you've met him, and I, I kind of, I haven't touched base with his work for a while, but I think uh, uh, one of our heroes that we mention uh, fairly regularly and uh, is very appropriate, because I, I, I think, he, I'm thinking of Terrence McKenna uh, and his sense of, of existence being a novelty engine a novelty generation. And I, I want you to give uh, listeners the bonus of uh, one of your uh, Terrence McKenna imitations, because you do a pretty <laughs> good one. You do a pretty good one. Sorry to what, put you on the spot. But what is, what is Terrence saying here? What, what, what is he talking about? I think something like one way to think of the whirlpool model of time is as a kind of cyclonic, uh, novelty <laughs> engine sort of thing. Well, one of the ways of thinking about time is as a novelty generator. I mean, you and me experience time as a linear point A to point B experience, but that is just not the case. That is where we have been placed in our existence to steward in influence for the past that's that's hilarious that's pretty <laughs> good that's pretty good i think we might have to build that in as a regular feature uh, you've you've got a good uh you're, you you know a pretty good natural mimic but you've certainly <laughs> got some feeling for him uh i think it would be um it would be hilarious for you to do a ventriloquial uh, sort of puppet show. I'm still thinking of that yeah. puppet, by the way, from yeah. last. Oh, where is the? Here's the puppet. But where you're doing a debate, a debate, a ghost debate, but more of a conversation because they both be agreeing. They wouldn't really be arguing. They'd be really. And say, there you go. That's so. That's really. I think. I think hey, it'd be there, fun Chris. if somebody cast a magic spell <laughs> where you really couldn't get that off your hand. For <laughs> yeah, I know, dude. Be, and you'd crazy. have to, you know, sorry, David's changed a little bit. He now has his He's friend good. speak for him. Creepy green I'd puppet, love, dude, no. <laughs> I'd love to hear you do uh, Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna, because mm. I know you've listened to a fair bit of both their podcasts. A lot of Alan you got Watts, a good yeah. ear. Yeah. yeah, there was a really good one that a friend of mine sent me recently. It was a conversation between uh, Ram Dass and Terrence McKenna. I'll send that your way too. You'll probably get a lot out of that. But yeah, man, I think this um, particular episode took a, a trippier direction than I initially expected that it would. Me too. Um, me too. But also, I think a really important one because I think that everybody right now is so is so future focused. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that at this point in the timeline, we're supposed to be looking towards the future. Although I feel that it has been 
you know, corrupted by things like progressivism. So I think it might be our job in this incarnation to, to trouble those waters just a little bit, to bring people back, not just to looking at the past, you know, with your great knowledge of writers and, and thinkers and scientists, uh, but also just with what the past even is, right? I, I, I think lost explorers, you know, we're, we're lost by choice. Yes. Yes. And, and we want others to get lost by choice as well. So I, th- I don't know. Yeah. I think this was a really good one. For, for I, I'm body. glad you think that because I, it certainly went off. I mean, it, this is one of the many things that I enjoy so much uh, is that I, you know, you, I just never know where, where things will go. And you, right really get me thinking in a whole bunch of different directions. And I really actually uh, appreciate that, especially because I'm not at home in my you know, mm-hmm. normal environment. I, I'm on the road, I'm in Seattle. And I think Seattle is at a particular, it's not the only city, it's not the only community or collision of communities that is in this particular whirlpool problematic moment but it definitely is and i think if you wanted to what my experience psychologically coming back having i don't know i think i was maybe a year ago i was here this is a a a psychic realm Mm -hmm. social realm that Mm -hmm. desperately needs to have its current waters troubled in different ways because and I'm not saying it doesn't have plenty of trouble. I mean, the, the homelessness, mm-hmm. the drug problems, the mental health problems, mm-hmm. the ideological paralysis, the progressive mm-hmm. corruption, the conflict of, of, of schismatic beliefs. Everything is to a point of paralysis, in my view. It's, it, it's, it can be some uh, obviously enjoyable stasis for some people who have means but there is a feeling of needing to to break the the wall of some of these uh these frames that are really really delimiting and and perhaps ossifying yeah 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 Yeah. it's it's a problem of modernity to be sure it's a it's a modern issue and i think that um you know the solutions to it on both ends are not great, but I think that what we're really talking about is that whether it's a person who's caught up in this downstream effect of modernity, fentanyl addicts, you know, woke, whatever, it's all it's all downstream of a of the industrial revolution. You know what I mean? Like it's we're all here because of that, and I think that. Uh, the best way to start messing with that a little bit is to introduce people to the third man in the woods or the third path, the third thing. That's, that's our whole goal. I think. I think that is the thing. And did I share with you any of my downtown Seattle photographs of that? I discovered I, I, I was loading in some more stuff to the gallery and I couldn't, the garage that I was using immediately across the street was, was closing. So I had to go to another and it was real, it was just a hassle and there are all these difficult people. But while I'm parking, 
I look up at the building next door and it's a residential old art deco apartment. And it has these beautiful, very large sort of cameo mm-hmm. works going up. The, there's mm-hmm. there many of them. And I'll send you the picture. It might be a good, it might be the thumbnail. I, I for summary for the show, I don't know. They're just beautiful though. But of this, these walruses, these beautiful, beautiful sculptural pieces that are complete. Yes. So I did send it to you. You did, yeah. You sent. Oh, okay, to good. I didn't know. I don't know if I did. I, but yes, thank you. I, 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 I'm still trying to process what that means to me. But to me, this it's part of the not understanding the consciousness of the relatively recent past, where that was seen to be a gesture worth making, mm-hmm. and I just think mm-hmm. it's so beautiful, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine anyone approving of that expense today and i don't know if anyone has the skill to do that so ah well we we covered a lot of weird ground and i i feel like the whirlpooling is is i I feel that's happening you know we're sending out spores man you know i mean we're it's it's all about this is what this show is supposed to do and uh i think that I mentioned earlier the idea of the thought generator, which is what I I'd said about your texts. It's like, that's what the show is supposed to do in general. But we're not necessarily always supposed to just, you know, hit the nail on the head, but to introduce new, I'm tripping still off of just thinking about fucking, you know, if you just really think about time as nonlinear, which I've encountered conceptually, in a lot of art that I enjoy and, uh, you know, a lot of thinkers that I enjoy, but if you really start thinking about it, you want to talk about troubling the waters. It gets really weird when you start thinking, like, what if the remake, what if, what if the original happened because of the re like, that's a crazy idea. Yeah. 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 I mean, the room starts to change shape a little bit, doesn't yeah, it? I got right. that feeling very definitely, you know, and uh, I've been, I was photographing uh, a motel hallway that I've used for a video. I often do and the notion of a deep frame, how that goes on. Yeah. That's been happening to me while we've been talking. And right. I realized, you know, this conversation with the past where something now is facilitating something in the past rather than the other way around. And this really messes with the photographic notion of cause and effect and all of these real very, very Western linearities that have that we've inherited. Those are just not working. They start to wobble and vibrate. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Well, as far as my imaginative challenge goes, I have some notes here. I've been enjoying these these past few because as listeners of the show will remember uh, last week, I feel like Chris and I really hit on an interesting idea for modern prisons as such. I introduced the idea of an open air prison, perhaps with some kind of device around the neck. And then Chris you know, further complicated that by saying, well, what if those collars were attached to other people? 
so that you experience the things that other people experience. And I feel like this one is similar in that. So I have a few ideas, a few starting points. I really like this kind of conversational imaginative challenge. So I'll read my notes. How myself, Rios, and Gus escaped the mirror verse, right? The first process is obviously moving physical space. We'd have to get out of America, I think. You know, I, you and I have talked about moving uh, to a, a coast in Mexico and starting up a kind of you know, cargo profit compound there. Yeah. With a, yeah. You know, so, some kind of connection to the, to the world, but this isn't a total, just, you know, you mentioned, you don't want it to just be like a, a prepper stockpile kind of, you know, you know, hundreds of cans of beans. How do you still function within reality without uh, completely getting away from it? And it brought to mind the idea of, of Kevin Kelly who's a, a big thing. He used to work for Google. He, he and did Wired a, a magazine. Yeah. And, and yeah. Wired. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he had an article at one point about, he called them Amish hackers. Right. What? And the concept of the Amish is very interesting to me. There's a lot of trouble, obviously uh, in the Amish in terms of gender politics, right? Like the, the, the women <laughs> are certainly not the kind of women that you or I are, are interested in, in terms of their, you know, subjugation and demure kind of uh, attitudes. But the Amish have a really interesting uh, relationship to technology, where they have a designated person who is tasked with keeping abreast of all new technologies, playing with them, and then going to an elder and making a case for whether or not they should use them. So the Amish are thought of as just these completely backwards people who don't use technology, and that's just not true. They do use they use phones. They have one communal phone. They don't have phones in their pockets, obviously, but they do right. have phones. Um, you know, they'll have you know half a million dollars worth of of heavy industrial equipment to to make the things that they sell on the market they can drive they can ride in cars but they can't drive them you know it's this kind of relationship to technology that is based on what can we as a community use from this thing without uh necessarily having it subsume our entire existence which i think is really smart they also have the really interesting practice of rumspringa which is when Amish kids turn 16, they're allowed to just go out into the world and decide whether they want to live there or with Amish people. And they have an 80 to 90% retention rate on that, right? So it seems kind of like they're doing something good there. So taking that idea of the Amish hacker and Rios and Gus and I, and you, you're welcome, of course, moving down to Mexico to create this kind of escape from the mirror verse. I think that we should first look into very practical measures. Do we know how to can food? Do we know how to hunt? Uh, I think the second thing that's the most important is to, within this six-month framework, to create a kind of project that we all work on together. Um, that project can be the building of something that's practical or not. doesn't really matter. It's just something to occupy your time during the day that keeps you away from the digital from the mirror, from the, the photographic universe. 
Uh, I think developing a really strong practice of ancestral worship and divination would be important. So we'd be going full occult here. We'd be going into right. this kind of animist, animist thing. But to bring it back to the Amish, right? So I'm thinking past those six months, because what if we love it so much that we actually don't want to leave? We'd have to begin to have designated times every day, maybe 30 minutes a day when we get onto our dial-up, satellite-connected computer and see what's going on in the world and very intentionally, intention being the most important word here, sort of investigate what's going on and what could help our little community at that moment. And I think, by the way, as you and I were talking about before we started all of this, I think that um, I do think that modernity is ending. I think that the way of life as we know it is dying. So I don't think that this imaginative uh, imaginative challenge is fantasy. I think this might be closer to what reality looks like in 30 to 40 years, maybe even 20, um, due to things like climate change and, you know, um, so I like to think of us as actually living in a really cool time. We're just in the childbirth part of it. We're in the painful part of it where everybody's staring at a phone and everybody's woke and all this kind of bullshit. But when I think about a small village on the coast of Mexico, that's able to utilize this kind of Amish hacker mentality to pick the parts of modernity that it actually likes low infant mortality uh antibiotics things like that and get rid of the rest and start to develop this kind of organic mythology that we all get to build together that to me actually seems kind of like paradise in its own way we're just kind of in the pains of it right now well, I think it, it, you know, it has been a kind of view of paradise, both in very historic terms, but also in counterculture in 1970s. Term. You know, that, I think a lot of communes were founded on that basis. I think that it, it and there are a lot of, of problems that need to be resolved in order for that to not be, you know, a, a utopia that just falls apart. I mean, in some ways, the history of America is a series of utopian communities, you know, that- hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. There's, there's a great book called Utopian Communities in America that I'll, I'll find online and show to you, but you're dead on. Well, the, uh, the guy who was the long, he's dead now, but the long-term editor of, uh, the Antioch Review, who have been very good to me, uh, based in Ante at Antioch College. I, I don't know if they're still published there. I think that it was hard to uh, you know, carry on a really quality literary journal. But uh, that was his specialty, was utopian communities. But I had a thought of, of when you were speaking, because I think this is very interesting. For instance, if you did have this Amish approach to a satellite comms check-in with the world, Mm -hmm. disciplined uh purposeful uh yeah. you might have like a radio uh expert you know with a nickname like sparks as the military and other things have you know right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But I thought, you know, one of the things that was kind of working about our prison idea, and I like that you did uh, uh, repeat that for listeners, because I think that was a really great combination of, mm-hmm. of both of our thinking that delivers something cool. One of the things that, that could happen is rather than there being one person in the tribe, the group, the community, who is the radio satellite radio expert, you distribute that skill and you rotate mm-hmm. that position. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it made totally. me think that one of the problems of the emergent communities, how, however agriculturally based they were, but the division between the hunter-gatherer nomadic communities of the past around the world and the settledness is specialization right you know you get we and you get names coming from wheelwright you know smith mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and okay there's a problem with that there are some good things about specialization absolutely there are you want to go to the wheelwright who makes the best wheels okay but it would be really helpful for a community to have the depth of field, the strength, the talent, like an athletic team or a band, so that that expertise and knowledge was distributed. And this is, of course, one of the things that the hallmarks of indigenous communities that are still surviving is there is that distribution, that depth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, but the other way of thinking of this is the problem with modernity, and I don't think Henry Ford and Edison are all to blame for this, certainly not Ford, but one of his, I mean, his big idea, interchangeability of parts, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. So you get this factory approach. If we could break out of that, so we break the specialization versus factory robot interchangeability nexus, that's where the key is to survival mm-hmm. and some soulful spiritual growth. If our community on, you know, in Mexico, and I think Mexico would be, would be a great place. It's close. It is one of the most ecologically diverse. Uh, we have some kind of contact with it already. We know it has a lot of problems. We know it does. But, but we just have a budget to pay off the cartels. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's that would be our that's, biggest. That's, that's our, our month. Our monthly rent is is three grand to the cartels. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. But, but I I do I do like this idea that you have right of like the interchangeability of parts versus the intense specialization of one part. Kind of again, it's the truth that we are talking about on this show is always somewhere in between and necessarily can't have a direct definition outside of terms like the third man or whatever, but knowing how I mentioned this to you several weeks ago, you know, I've been playing a a car mechanic simulator and I'm beginning to learn how the inside of a, of a car works, how the parts fit together. I would never in a million years think that I was a mechanic. No, right. But yes, but, but, isn't there value in being able to converse intelligently with the specialists, right? I could not be you. We're not interchangeable, but I have enough vocabulary 
and knowledge to talk to you about things. Oh, carburetors busted. Okay, cool. Well, so, you know, and then he gives me these three options. Like we don't have to, I mean, we saw this so much in, you know, the, the COVID time with, you know, trusting the science and just like, just listen to the science and I would never in a million years call myself a science. I'm not a, I am not a, a, an epidemiologist or a biologist or a microbiologist, a disease specialist, a, a vaccine technician, none of those things. But I have enough working knowledge combined with a kind of humble, oaky uh, common sense to say, hmm, this seems weird. This seems weird, and you'll notice people say, "No, just listen to this. Listen to the priest. Listen to the specialist. Listen to." Well, no, I I know enough to know something's not right here, right? I I don't know I don't know enough to go toe to toe with you on a debate about epidemiology, but something seems weird. I think you just said something so important and covered absolutely crucial ground to to really bring that to life with the level of detail that it needs because you covered a crucial tonal quality of of humility of not overstepping what you could learn and what you could claim to know so there's mm -hmm. a total sort of attitude attitudinal there but there is a beautiful pedagogical commitment to the good the good, the, the personal good for you of understanding in some way and feeling less disempowered, less distanced, being able to participate more and to enjoy a discussion about mechanics or whatever. And mm -hmm. that view, the, com the combination of those two, that really captures the essence of the best the best of the 18th century view. And it is the loss of that across the 19th century that some of the great visionaries, people like Thoreau and, and Whitman from another point, but people in the science, they started to notice this difference, this increasing sense of specialization and not only more special knowledge. So it was harder to, to find a polymath, you know, like Humboldt or on and on and on. Um, it wasn't so much that not, we think that that's now the case, that knowledge is just so great that we have to have all this. But no, it's the attitudinal idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. more, it's much more what you just ran down than it really is all this great knowledge that we've, what we've created is a lot more information maybe, but a lot of stuff that may be outdated, you know, tomorrow. Right. Uh, I think the key is what you laid down, and mm -hmm. that is our crystal radio idea. That is psychic defense. That's also just a joyful, optimistic participation and the possibility of less psychic alienation for us all. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a good example of this is just in the doctor's visits that Gus and I have in terms of vaccines, right? Big topic, vaccines. I'm not a vaccine expert, but you know, when I do go, the, the doctor is 
obligated to tell me that, you know, the COVID vaccine is available for Gus. So I know enough to say, no, that's out of the question. COVID does not affect babies the way it affects the elderly. We're not doing that. HPV vaccine. Mm, No, I don't think we're going to do that either because, um, you know, HPV is very common. It can cause cervical cancer in women, but for my boy, I don't want every vaccine comes with its price of heavy metals and risk of, of those kind of toxins being in the body. It's true. It, it just is what it is. Chicken pox. I asked the doctor, I said, I said, I didn't know there was a chicken pox vaccine. And she said, yeah, yeah. And I was like, how new is that? She's like, well, my son had it and he's 17 and he's fine. And I said, yeah, but I'm 36 and I had the chicken pox and I'm fine. So I think I'll just let him get the chicken pox. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, um, and then when you get to other things like hepatitis and, and DTAP, right. Uh, and it, which is like pertussis and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I weigh those options and then I say, okay, give, give him those, right? Because the heavy metal risk to me is less, less important than him not getting, you know, hepatitis or tetanus or pertussis or, or what have you. These kind of things that are like real, real killers, you know, polio, right? Sure. Have the polio vaccine. That's totally fine. The, the, this if there is anything that is an example of emergence and disappearance, reemergence and disappearance, disease is it. I mean, mm, holy, totally, holy, totally, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Oh, totally. man, we just circled all around. I think that yeah. was that was really cool. That was really Yeah, that cool. was cool. Oh, so, wow. Do you have a book for us today? I do. And I think it's uh, both my tool and tip are, are, are language driven this time, but I think our listeners will really appreciate this. And I can't stress the, the, the benefit of the first one uh, as a discipline. It's one of the um, major uh, techniques in my memory and alertness uh book i've i've had just great results from it and we do this accidentally you know this isn't a huge no one's ever thought of this idea before i'm not claiming that i'm 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 talking about doing it as a discipline as an exercise uh regimen caption this image Mm -hmm. we see that challenge a lot don't we well what we need is to break that relationship structure down entirely and do some radically oblique captioning of images. If you were to practice this once a day and really strive for breaking with the patterns that are underlie our deep semantics for, you know, most writing, reading, thinking people, our listenership, I think, is, is, is a good example, people at this level. What you need to do is to do this discipline enough so that you break free of your own patterns, your own patterns of 
how, because we all have, would have a strategy, you know, so we're not going to caption the thing straight. Okay. We're just not, we're going to go, well, what is our strategy then? What's our flaw? You know, what is the, the tonal quality of the caption? How far, how much at an angle, how tangential is it to the image, to the, the sense of, of the cartoon image or whatever? Really play around with, with shattering the, the caption image nexus. And a wonderful way to do that is with also with subtitles to movies that are just completely out of sync and wrong. They're fabulous. <laughs> they really, really wake the mind up. So that is my tool. Use disjunction. Use mosaic, fragmentation, fracture. Lean into fracture and to displacement and disjunction with language versus image, lean into it hard. And you will start to see something new about your own patterns of semantic organization. But some of the pressures that are imposed upon us all from who knows where, deep within you know, the ghost radio signal of language and culture. And we'll start to get a little bit more freedom a little bit more sovereignty back, a little bit more flexibility, and a little bit more genuine intentionality. So that's my tool and my tip builds on this. I have been successful with this at uh, a pretty remedial level of, of university teaching. So I have confidence that our more sophisticated uh, listenership will have no problem with this whatsoever. I want people to think very much in terms of what the mechanistic versus the organic worldviews and models, how that, how those might find expression. But try to do some simple free writing in a journal sense where you write one sentence and it's probably going to be in, in sentence type terms, a simple sentence, a simple declarative sentence, but try to keep it as mechanistic as possible, as absolutely mechanistic as possible. Mm -hmm. Then immediately follow it with the most organic analog that you can. Mm -hmm. Try to take that metaphor. It's a basic, deep, uh, either or schism that we've been talking about within Western culture, mechanism versus the organic view. Try to alternate those sentences across a, a modest length paragraph and watch what happens to you and get one other person to read it. And some interesting things will start happening. And I won't Love say, it. I won't try to preempt what direction that will go in, but I know it will be cool. So just, just one of each mechanistic yes. organic boom, really boom, do boom, it boom. with some energy drive some discipline mm -hmm. yeah and, like and that. The paragraph on either note when don't you don't have to be too algorithmic about it and if you start with a mechanistic don't you don't feel you have but just follow that rhythm mm -hmm. just just take on that challenge with each sentence you think okay my sentence challenge structure tonal psychology feel has got to be very organic the next sentence 
very mechanistic. Next sentence, organic. Alternate mm -hmm. that pattern until you feel like the paragraph has found its shape and form. And you will have something odd happen. I guarantee. To move into the dream time, I had a very interesting dream. And this one's me. with me. Tell me. Well, I had a dream that I was filming a documentary on the 1993 Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Hard Target. <laughs> I've seen that film. I like Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's a John Woo film, right? John Woo, legend of Hong Kong cinema, hard-boiled, A Better Tomorrow. He also did uh, American films like Face Off, Broken Arrow, and Hard Target was his Van Damme vehicle and i had this dream that i was interviewing jean-claude van damme and he looked like he did in the 1993 film with the the mullet you know right van damme had the, yeah. mullet film. the hair and and the combination of that and the eyes he didn't need yeah. any, any martial arts he just needed that look you know just a look yeah the hard target look and he he tells me in the interview he said every day before we started shooting John Woo would come into my room and wake me up and he would usher me into just this blank room where I had to watch Tom Arnold get raped by this Howard Stern character, Beetlejuice. You know, this weird deformed black guy. Have you ever seen this dude on Howard Stern? He would come on sometimes. Uh, uh, no, I have to say he's like a he's like a midget black guy who's got like this weird deformed face, and he would just make me watch Tom Arnold get raped by Beetlejuice, and uh, and then I woke up. So that was my dream. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know if listeners will pick up on this, but I. They're in some very, very uh, lateral uh, spiral sort of way. I see some sort of connection because my dream was uh, very um, focused in terms of location. I was only aware of a kind of hardcore metro urban alley in and the rest of the city didn't you know really matter i think this is heavily influenced by being in right downtown seattle with the gallery yeah right right that that's been very very micro focused and there just simply isn't any real horizon possibilities because of the buildings but there was a one individual white with a very very uh severe uh mustache and beard very short and he reminded me of uh one of my junior high school teachers who taught mechanical drawing and shop we called he was mr bailey but we called him mechanical bailey because he was kind <laughs> of mechanical and this guy and the, this there's nobody else around and there's just this really dense uh iron cement urban old time city feel very micro very just around us and he says to me 
you may encounter a man who says to you, I had a dream about men dressed in white playing golf under the northern lights. And the cool part of this is, okay, that's weird, right? Of course, because it's dream, you know, but it's like, I, there's many different things I could have said, but I'm really proud of myself in the dream because I answered what's what response should I give? <laughs> that was the right. He says to me, say back two dollars will get you five. If you find someone else with three and then he just walked through the alley and then I, I woke up, but you know, out of all, like, so this guy in this weird, you know, says you're going to meet a man, no description, you know, who says to you, I had a dream about men dressed in white playing golf under the Northern, under the Northern lights. lights. Yeah. And what I dig is that I just, I rolled with it. This ties into the like chatting with strangers and being kind mm -hmm. of on the mm -hmm. beat just without really trying to, you know, what response should I give? Right. And that was the right answer to not question the whole program, but just to fit in. Yeah. Slot into it. Yeah. $2 will get you five if you meet someone with three. Yeah. And I have no idea where the hell that came from or, you know, the golf under the Northern Lights. But there you it's go. It's a beautiful image. Men dressed in white playing golf under the Northern Lights. That's. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? I mean, I started to think about that and it's really beautiful and haunted and, and just, mm -hmm. I'd love to film that. It's very human. I sent you a picture of Beetlejuice, by the way. Okay. Okay. Oh, dear. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh <laughs> god! Oh, that's highly disturbing. That's highly disturbing. <laughs> and with that, we will end.